Bob Selinger explains why the Tower of Terror is his favorite ride at the Magic Kingdom. It has you anticipating and frightened at the same time. And when it's all over, you just don't know how they did it. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, the co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World helps you plan a visit to the world's most popular theme parks with a minimum of frustration and fatigue. Or you could see why Tokyo Disneyland is journalist Brooke Barnes' favorite. It's just so over the top. They probably spend twice as much money on their rides. But before you go, you might need a little advice for making your next flight with small kids enjoyable for everybody. We use the last row or the very back, and we find it's best not to have an audience when we're parenting at 37,000 feet. And learn about Hillary Bratt's favorite animals in exotic Madagascar. As long as there are trees, there are lemurs. There's family fun in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. If frustration seems to be an uninvited guest in your family travels, we may be able to help out in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. A pair of moms bring us travel-tested advice for making a flight with young children fun for everyone. Plus, travel publisher Hilary Bratt tells us why Madagascar is one of her favorite places in the world. It has something to do with the lemurs. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. You know, I've never really understood the huge popularity of the Disney theme parks, but they're among the top travel destinations in the world. So let's find out what's in the formula for the Magic Kingdom and what kind of planning you need to consider to make sure a trip to Disney World will be enjoyed by everyone in your group. In just a bit, we'll check in with New York Times reporter Brooks Barnes in Los Angeles. He covers the Walt Disney Company as part of his entertainment industry beat. Brooks wrote a fun article a while back comparing 13 Disney theme parks around the world, and he wrote that visiting all of them turned him from a skeptic into a self-confessed member of the Mickey Mouse Club. Let's start with Bob Selinger. Bob is half the team who writes the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. It's consistently one of the top-selling guidebooks in America. He joins us from the studios of WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama. Bob, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, Bob, orient me. I mean, when I was a kid, it was just Disneyland in Anaheim, and now it's this vast empire. Take us around the world. What is the Disneyland theme park empire? The empire includes... Disneyland in California, Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and then there are parks in Japan, Marne la Vallée outside Paris, and also Shanghai coming online, and Hong Kong. Which park is the the biggest draw? Well, in the United States, certainly it's Walt Disney World, and within Walt Disney World, it's the Magic Kingdom. Walt Disney World is 27,000 acres, and it's about the size of municipal Boston or uh, Manhattan Island. It's a huge place, and within that expanse, there are four theme parks, two water theme parks, about uh, 30 hotels, about 100 restaurants, a a sports arena and facility, canals, four-lane highways. It's a city unto itself. You've written this tome. This book is 800 pages, and it, it sorts it all out for you. I know how big the island of Manhattan is. In there, you've got all these different theme parks. Don't people just kind of get overwhelmed and, and almost don't know where to start and end up staying at the pool at the hotel? Absolutely, they do. It's uh, an intimidating destination, and essentially what we endeavor to do is to make that destination manageable for them. How would I sort through Disney World if it's my first visit, I'm with my kids, and I've got you know four nights and three days? Well, essentially, you know you're going to go to the major theme parks. And if you've got three days, you're only going to be able to do three of the four. And if you've got kids, you're probably going to do Animal Kingdom, Disney, Hollywood Studios, and the Magic Kingdom. But the most essential thing, two things actually, one is to prepare, and secondly is when you get there to have a plan. We advocate that families start walking together, simulating sort of a a theme park experience in malls, Because once you get down there, 
you're going to be clocking maybe 8 or 9 to 12 miles a day walking in these parks. And if you're couch potato and just walk into this cold, you're going to be toast in about a day and a half. On the planning side, we are sort of accidental travel writers. We come from a operations management field, which is sort of like how many widgets you can pack into a particular box. And I was at Walt Disney World a number of years ago with my kids, spent a bucket of money, and only saw about five attractions. And I knew that using some of the the tools and precepts of operations management that we could devise some sort of a plan that would route our readers counter to the flow of the crowd and allow them to do just about everything they wanted with a minimal weight in line. Now, that's a big deal in your book, Walt Disney World. You have what's called touring plans, and you claim these can save up to four hours of waiting in line in a single day. How can that be? Well, you have to think about what's going on when you evaluate how you can go through a theme park. For instance, the Magic Kingdom with our one-day touring plan, we send you the best possible route to see 24 different attractions. Now, there are more ways to see 24 different attractions, more different touring plans that you could devise than there are grains of sand on the earth. So what we've done is created an algorithm that looks at all of these different possibilities and winnows it down to one best plan. On my last visit, what struck me is it's becoming a class kind of situation. If you've got lots of money, you just pay extra and you're VIP and you avoid all those lines. Well, that's more true at Universal than at at Disney World. But what Disney World has done is to create incentives for people to stay in Disney hotels that give them a leg up when it comes to using the new FastPass Plus program. FastPass Plus being a reservation system where you get a particular time for you to come to a specific attraction. You can go online to mydisneyexperience.com and with your hotel reservation, sign in and reserve three fast passes per park per day. And you have this all locked in before you ever leave home. So that's making an appointment at the most popular attractions. You just show up at your appointed time and they take you right to the turnstile and you're on? Pretty much. But the fly in the ointment is that the day guests, people that aren't staying in Disney resorts or haven't bought their ticket media ahead of time, they're stuck with whatever happens to be left in the way of fast passes, which can be very little. Now, you write what's called the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. Why do you say unofficial, and, and how does that differ from official? We are unofficial because we were the very first to publish an independent critical appraisal of the Disney product. We can critically appraise and objectively appraise, and we can evaluate and do research that may not result in an outcome that is particularly pleasing to Disney. If a ride's not worth the wait, if a restaurant's overpriced, we can say this. They didn't like us for many, many years. At that time, there were compatriots of Walt who were in charge of Disney media, and they felt that they had sort of a divine right not to be criticized. But over the years, I think they came to their senses and Mm. understood that having a relationship with anybody doing a guidebook and being able to make sure that they were getting the most recent and correct information to use in the guidebook was to their advantage. Bob Selinger's unofficial guide to Walt Disney World has sold more than 4 million copies. It's a practical, detailed, and opinionated guide to the Disney theme parks and resorts, as well as some of the neighboring attractions run by their competitors. For another angle on the Disney Kingdom, we're joined now by New York Times reporter Brooks Barnes. He covers the entertainment industry from Los Angeles, and that includes the Walt Disney Company. Brooks wrote an article a while back that caught our attention here at Travel with Rick Steves. In it, he compared his experience at each of the Disney parks around the world. Brooks, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Brooks, given all the time people spend waiting in lines and and just exhausting themselves in these parks, what do you find about them that turned you apparently from a cynic into a fan of the Disney theme park experience? Not just the time, but the expense. I mean, for a family of five uh, to go and get tickets and hotels and food, it's really a lot of money. You know, what Disney sells is nostalgia. 
it really kind of always hooks back into this idea that when I was a carefree kid without a worry in the world, I visited Disneyland and had this feeling, and now I can bring my family and the grandparents can come. And, you know, if, if you look at their product, it's very, in most cases, backward looking, uh, you know, frontier land and adventure in Africa, you know, colonialism and that kind of thing. And that that's a powerful product. People really love it. That nostalgia thing, I'm just analyzing my own feelings, and that would be the draw for me. I had beautiful times there when I was just eight or nine years old, and now I can go back with our kids and we can do it again. Bob, when you're uh, writing your book, you talk about the importance of being goofy for an adult to have a good time at Disneyland. What do you mean by the importance of being goofy? Well, both at Disneyland and to use our book, you have to have a sense of humor. Disney takes themselves incredibly seriously, and uh, sometimes they get mired down in the detail, worrying about whether the Little Mermaid's cleavage is too large or whether Goofy looks effeminate in a cape. It is fun to know a little bit about what their concerns are because they set these high ideals, which can almost be comical. I mean, my understanding is uh, at the Pirates of the Caribbean, there there originally was these uh, pirates chasing these girls lustfully, and, and somebody said, that's not very nice, and so they put food in. The girls are now holding food, and it looks like the men are after the food instead of the girls. Uh, yeah, they definitely did that, but to their credit, they didn't remove the scene completely. They kind of <laughs> they tried to adjust it. Well, knowing Disney, they are, to say a divine right not to be criticized is putting it lightly. And as maddening as it is as a reporter trying to peer in and, and look objectively and, and get help from their executives is also understandable. It, it's an army. They've got tens of thousands of workers, millions of people coming in and out of there. And to make it all run seamlessly, they have super strict <laughs> uh, policies. But in terms going to the Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, they've tried to update things to be more current and they, they don't want to have things feel like they're trapped in amber or or visiting a museum, especially as kids become more interactive and focused on video games and not just sitting passively and watching a show. But that's kind of the the trick that all of the Disney parks or, or line they're trying to walk these days, which is they know that if they take something that's beloved, like Pirates of the Caribbean, and change it too much, there is such an outrage by the hardcore classic Disney files that they could really oh, yeah. run afoul. You cannot mess with the Swiss Family Robinson treehouse in my mind or you're in big trouble. Well, they did. Did they? Oh, no. <laughs> well, it sounds pretty good. In fact, that's just the right spirit. What was it like when you saw the look on your child's face as she met Snow White for the very first time? Let's check in with your own adventures at the Disney theme parks in just a bit at 877-333-RICK. Later in the hour, we get mom-tested advice for flying with young children with tips to help minimize the tears and all the fussing that comes with flying with kids. And we'll hear about the amazing lemurs of Madagascar. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic-sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves.
We're looking at Disney World today on Travel with Rick Steves and how to plan a visit that keeps you and the kids happy without breaking the bank. The co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World, Bob Selinger, is with us. And on the phone, New York Times entertainment industry reporter Brooks Barnes joins us from his base in Los Angeles. Bob Selinger, when you're thinking about Disney, what was curious to me is how much energy is put into shopping. You, you pay a lot of money to get in, and then half the park seems to be shops that are that are quite aggressively selling stuff rather than taking on amusement rides. And there's the issue then of, of what sells. Their formula is princesses, uh, girls waiting demurely for their prince, Snow White, Cinderella, and so on. The ones that need to be rescued, that's what makes money, even though the tendency for a lot of moms now is to let their girls have uh, fantasy models that would be more self-assured. What's your take on that? Well, ancillary sales, both food and uh, merchandise, is, is huge. That's one of the problems that Euro Disney, now Disneyland Paris had, was that they expected that all these Parisians and Europeans were going to line up at the cash registers and buy copious numbers of souvenirs and T-shirts, and, and they didn't. In the same sense, in Disneyland Paris originally, they thought that all the Europeans were going to want to have sit-down meals at lunch, and it turned out that just like Americans, they wanted uh, hamburgers and fries. So Hmm. that put their uh, revenue projections totally out of line with reality. That park actually met its attendance numbers the first year it was open, But they had so many misunderstandings and misconceptions about the buying behavior of Europeans that they were behind the eight ball in terms of revenue from the very beginning. In your assessment, is there any negative consequences of them celebrating uh, needy girls as opposed to self-assured women in their retailing and so on? That's what makes the money, but that's not the model that a lot of parents want their girls to be uh, influenced by. I think that you make a good point. A lot of parents do feel that way, and Disney has responded to that very clearly with princesses like the Frozen Ladies, which is bigger than the Lion King at this point. But the the thing that people often forget uh, that I've discovered in reporting on this is that the parents, most time mom, can complain, you know, as strongly as they want about the what these princesses are communicating to little girls. Little girls like the princesses. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. Cinderella is a hardworking princess because, you know, if you're a little girl, you like dress up, you like the prince, you like all those things. And so that's what even sells. Though, yeah, that's what sells. And so Disney, even though they're aware that there's like a parental pushback and they've responded, you know, those classic princesses aren't going anywhere. Right. Hey, hey Brooks, after your experience, you visited all the parks in the world. How do the non-U.S. Disney parks compare with the American ones, and what was your favorite of all the parks you visited outside the United States? Well, for years and years, I've, I've heard people say that the Japan parks are far and away their favorites, and I kind of always thought that was silly. I, I then went and understood what they were talking about. It's just so over the top in terms of the theming and the spending. They probably spend twice as much money on their rides Like the Tower of Terror, for example, is a popular ride at all the parks. And in the United States, you know, it looks like a a hotel with stucco outside. And in Japan, it's built out of brick. (laughs) You know, it's that type of difference. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at what places Walt Disney World in Orlando among the world's top travel destinations. We're joined by one of the authors of the popular Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World, Bob Selinger. And on the phone from Los Angeles is New York Times reporter Brooks Barnes. You can find a link to Brooks' article, What I Discovered by Visiting Every Disney Park, in this week's show details. That's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. We're also checking in with our listeners on their Disney experiences at 877-333-7425. Stephanie's on the line from Boston. Thanks for calling. Hi, thank you. I have a question. I'm a grandmother of a seven-year-old girl who loves horses and unicorns, and her four-and-a-half-year-old brother, who's very much a fan of Buzz Lightyear. And they've never been to Disney World, and we're thinking of going there with them. And I was wondering if you could give us some suggestions, the minimum amount of time, days, to spend there, 
and how to pace ourselves so that we don't run ourselves ragged. When you go to Disney World with children, you sort of have to have the mentality that less is more. If you go thinking that the end game is seeing every single thing, you're just going to run yourself into the ground. So you have to build rest and off days into your touring itinerary while you're there. And you have to take those kids and get them walking to the point where they could walk five or six or seven miles or at least ride in a stroller for the same distance with you pushing it before they fall apart. But the main thing is don't worry about not seeing things. It'll all be there next year. What you need to attend to is what will make you happy, what will make your day the best at any particular moment. If it's leaving the park and going back to the hotel for a nap, that's what you should do. It sounds like how to make the happiest place on earth actually the happiest place on earth. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's a great idea. And thanks great for idea. your call, Stephanie. Thank you. Esther's calling in from Fort Worth in Texas. Esther, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. And this sounds like so much fun. I still have that visual about Goofy and his cape and their concerns. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As a baby boomer who grew up with the Mickey Mouse Club, the original Mickey Mouse Club, it's almost sacrilegious, but I've never been to a um, Disney World, Disneyland location. I have a daughter also who's in her late 20s, and we've talked about going to one of the locations, and I would like your recommendations for just adults going for the sheer joy of it. What kind of budget parameters? Is there a particular time of the year where we would have less of the crowds and... Can you do it in a weekend? Which which location? What kind of guidelines would you give us? Yeah, different sort of skill set for traveling, enjoying Disneyland without the kids. Uh, Brooks and Bob, any thoughts on that? One thought I had was at Epcot, they've sort of positioned it as more of an adult draw. They have a flower and garden festival once a year that's really pretty spectacular, and they also have food and wine festival. That's also a big month or two-month-long extravaganza. And so a lot of adults, I know, like going for that. Um, but then also, as part of that, they can do strategic <laughs> visits into uh, the more fantasy-oriented parks. Bob Selinger, as an adult, what's your favorite ride in all of your Disney experience? Oh, easily the Tower of Terror. I think it's the most spectacular thing that Disney's ever created. How, why? Tell me, describe it. I don't know what it is. It's just an extraordinary attraction with great depth, a wonderful story, a tie-in with Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, a ride mechanism that has you anticipating and frightened at the same time. And when it's all over, you just don't know how they did it. You go up in an elevator, and the elevator actually comes out of the shaft and wanders around on one of the floors, goes back in the shaft, goes up to the top of the thing, and then they simulate the cable breaking and you plummeting back to Earth. And you get off with two things on your mind. One is you're happy you survived it, but secondly, you're wondering, how in the world did they do that? Wow, anticipation and terror. Whoa, that's what adults need. Esther, does that give you some tips? Yes, and, and can you do it in a weekend, and what kind of budget parameters would we be looking at? And that'd be for Bob. You could do Disneyland and uh, Disney's California Adventures, which is across a plaza in a weekend, because there's only two parks. If you're going to Walt Disney World, I'd say the minimum that you'd want is five or six days. As once again, you're going to have the same problem as families with children. You just can't go full bore Every day, you have to plan some, some rest days and some easy days. You get to the point where you're not enjoying what you're seeing anymore because you're, you're just totally fatigued. And don't measure the success of the day and how many rides you went on. Exactly. Esther, thanks for your call. Thank you so much, and appreciate all the good tips. Bye-bye. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by uh, Bob Salinger, and he's the co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World. And Brooks Barnes is on the phone uh, with us from L.A. He's a reporter for The New York Times, and he's written a, a fascinating article called What I Discovered by Visiting Every Disney Park. And Ashley's calling in from Nashville in Tennessee. Ashley, hi. Hi, Rick. How are you? Doing good. What's your Disneyland experience? Well, um, my husband and I actually went to Disney World for our honeymoon, and we had an amazing time. I've been a lifelong Disney fan, but my husband had only been one time. We just had a great trip. I think some of the 
things that made it fun for us were not putting too much pressure on ourselves to get a lot done. It was our honeymoon, and we wanted to relax. And we stayed at the Epcot area resorts, which made it really great for getting to Epcot, and we could have a romantic evening there and just walk right back to our resort and not have to deal with the transportation. There are so many great dining experiences. I love all of the Epcot restaurants, as well as many of the resort restaurants are delicious. And you definitely do need to have reservations. You'll have a long wait if you don't have a reservation, especially at dinner time, which is when we were wanting to have our nicest meal of the day. When you're there on your honeymoon, did you do any any funny little trick with the photographs that are taken in the middle of a ride? Oh, uh, we did have some funny ones. We really enjoyed in Spaceship Earth. They have a thing now where they take your picture before you go on the ride, and then they replay it back. You, they it's interactive. You get to answer a bunch of questions about what you see your life like in the future, and then they create this <laughs> perfect world for you, and they put your face in these little you know, pre-designed images of you. And you're in these different environments. It was so funny. We took pictures of those. And, of course, many of the rides like Splash Mountain and Tower of Care, those things, which are always funny. So, Bob, what's your advice for actually dining well in a Disneyland park? Well, it's not just the Disneyland park. Sometimes if you're, uh, for instance, in the Magic Kingdom, you would be better off getting on the monorail and going to the Grand Floridian, the uh, Polynesian, or the uh, Contemporary Resort where they have more restaurants and restaurants that cater to a more adult clientele. But the main thing about dining at Disney, whether you're dining in a hotel or in the theme park, is like she said, you have to have these advanced reservations. The other thing, just sort of bringing it back to dollars and cents, is that the prices of entrees in Disney restaurants at Walt Disney World have gone up 38% since uh, 2010. And in addition to that, Busier times of year, they levy a surcharge just for the uh, privilege of dining there. We have established that if you rent a car and eat at comparable restaurants outside of Walt Disney World, you'll more than pay for the price of the rental car. Ashley, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. It's great to talk to you. I love what you do. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Bob Selinger, the co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World, and Brooks Barnes, who's a reporter for The New York Times, who's written an article called What I Discovered by Visiting Every Disney Park. We're at 877-333-7425. And Rick is calling in from Silverdale in Washington State. Rick, thanks for your call. Uh, I'm a huge Disney fan, and I've been lucky enough to visit Disneyland multiple times. And the tip I wanted to share with your listeners are the resorts at Walt Disney World. I have so much fun just spending a day visiting the different resorts. I think there's something like 19 or 20 different resorts at Walt Disney World. But uh, with all those, I certainly have a favorite. And my very favorite resort of all the Disney resorts in the entire world is the Wilderness Lodge. The Wilderness Lodge is essentially an extension of Frontierland. The Wilderness Lodge takes the story of a National Park Lodge. You feel like you've arrived at the Iwani in Yosemite, but everything is themed to the detail. The landscaping, the background music, the food, Mm. and the shopping. What's the name of it again, Rick? The Wilderness Lodge. In Florida. So when you go down to Disney World, that would be something that you'd recommend? Absolutely. It's just absolutely incredible. They actually have cast members there that play the part of a forest park ranger, and they give tours as if you were at a national park. They even have a a geyser outside, which is part of the story and part of the landscape. Bob Selinger, what's your take on Wilderness Lodge and what Rick is talking about? It was uh, done by Peter Dominic, a renowned architect, and he also designed the Animal Kingdom Lodge, which likewise is just an extraordinary work of art. And we recommend all our readers literally take a day off and by bus or by their own car, visit both of those places. And what's really fun, you can go just as a visitor. You don't have to stay at the resort to experience the resort experience. It's just a nice way of extending the vacation. And to be very candid, not spending much money. I mean, the only money you would spend would maybe be for parking if you came with your car or if you were to have a meal Mm -hmm. or a drink. Or again, buy those unique Disney souvenirs. 
every resort, at least the larger resorts, have souvenirs unique to that particular resort. So I actually have a miniature totem pole that is uh, a copy of the real totem pole in the lobby of the Wilderness Lodge. And that proudly sits on my mantle at home. Very nice. Well, Rick, thanks so much for your call. Thank you, Rick. It's amazing what an empire Walt Disney has put together, and we've been sharing um, insights into this with uh, Brooks Barnes, who writes for the New York Times, and his recent article is called What I Discovered by Visiting Every Disney Park, and Bob Selinger, who's the co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World. Brooks and Bob, I'd like to just close, if you could each share a thought on if Walt Disney was here today and he wanted to take us to the park or one of the parks, and what would be a moment or experience that would make him the most proud? Brooks, let's start with you. Uh, Well, it would be hard uh, not to point to the many, many, many families who take their photo at the center of the Magic Kingdom with Walt and Mickey. People are still doing that. That would probably make him pretty proud. Um, But I think just the the little moments, uh, if you're at one of the parks and you pay attention to, you know, that seven-year-old eyes as he walks into Star Tours or the little old lady getting on Mark Twain's steamboat, uh, you can see something that you don't get every day. And, and I think that's the bottom line, what tickles people so much about this place. Bob Selinger. I think Walt would be very gratified to see that his version of an amusement park has become the gold standard for the entire world. When he developed Disneyland, he was not only developing a wonderful place, but he also had some things that he was trying to resolve that were problematic in other amusement parks. For him to see the the landscaping, the cleanliness of the parks, the utopian atmosphere, the joy of the kids and how his successors have been able to translate his dream for what an amusement park should be to all these parks around the world would just be as gratifying as possible. And I think all in all, his successors have done a pretty good job on taking the vision of Walt Disney and carrying it into the next generations. They have. Bob Selinger, co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World, and Brooks Barnes from The New York Times, thanks so much for sharing your insights into the Disneyland theme park empire. My pleasure. Thank you. Want to know a secret? Promise not to tell? We are standing by a wishing well. Make a wish into the well. That's all you have to do. And if you hear it echoing, your wish will soon come true. I'm wishing Yes, Mother Knows Best, and we have two moms joining us next to share their kid-tested advice for flying with young children. And world traveler Hilary Bratt shares what she loves about the lemurs of Madagascar, who rate pretty high on everybody's list of cute critters. Happy vacation. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Chances are the soundtrack of your last long-distance flight included a crying child or two. Maybe one of them was yours. Let's explore some ways to smooth out the rough spots on an airplane flight with small children. We're joined now by Anya Clowers. She's a registered nurse who's written Jet with Kids and blogs about techniques to take the fear and turmoil out of flying at jetwithkids.com. Ashley Steele also makes family travel with her young kids a priority. Her book and website called Family on the Loose provide advice and a little sympathetic humor on planning a guilt-free adventure with the entire family. Anya and Ashley, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks Rick. Now, when we're traveling with kids, first of all, there's the economics of it. These days, uh, what is the uh, the budget tips, uh, Anya, when it comes to getting a ticket? Or Ashley, do you have any ideas on, do you travel free? At what age do you have to pay for a ticket? Is it better, even if you can go free, to pay for a ticket to get an extra seat? 
We managed to fly by using the free tickets. You have to travel. Each airline is different on when their free tickets end. And some airlines have discounts all the way up to 12 or 14 years old. So if you use some of those travel search engines like kayak.com. So different airlines will be more uh, aggressive at getting families on their flights with their pricing. At what age do you no longer get a free take the kid on for free? I've never seen a free ticket over three Three. and rarely over two. And that means you've got your child on your lap. Before that, yes. Mm -hmm. But often the air, the flight attendants and the staff will work to put you next to an open seat. So if there is an open seat, you'll get one. If the plane is packed, you won't. Okay. So if you got a two or three-year-old and the airline offers it, your chances are you can get the child on the lap free pass. And if there's any way to get a seat, they'll arrange it for you. No one wants to sit next to you. So they will arrange that free seat. (laughs) And you can ask at the check-in counter if the flight is not full, then they'll let you even bring the car seat on if they know you're going to be next to Uh, an empty seat. I have to interject really quick as the the nurse and the safety advocate for kids. It's not safe to hold them on your lap. And if you put a seatbelt on, you really should give your kids the same protection. And it's best to purchase a seat for your child, not only for the safety of them, but also for the comfort you're, when you're flying long hours with them. The infants are and toddlers are the most defenseless passengers on the plane, mm-hmm. so they deserve the seatbelt. And it's a hard concept for parents. Uh, we like to take advantage mm-hmm. of that. But really, um, you're going down the runway at 200 miles an hour, and turbulence has injured and killed infants. So I'm, as a safety advocate, very passionate about that. Okay. So that's interesting. The airline will allow you to compromise the safety in that regard. The airline will allow it. But if you check the small fine print, the FAA, the the National Safety Transportation Board, and the airlines themselves say you need to buckle up. Okay. So it's not an issue for kids over two or three. But if you have an infant, you do have that issue. And if you're going to pay for a seat, you can put your car seat on that and this child can be safely buckled in. Yes, and what I recommend instead of taking the car seat, especially when going to Europe, if you have a child between 22 and 44 pounds, there's a FAA-approved harness. Oh. That is one pound and goes in your bag. Very nice. That's good to know. What about choosing seats? If you're going to pay for a seat for your child or any advice, what do you find works best? Uh, we use the last row or the very back, and we find it's best not to have an audience when we're parenting at 37,000 feet. <laughs> so um, also, you will find more families back there, and so... It's respecting, mutual respect for everyone on the plane. Ah, kids in the back. All right, that makes sense. Are there services that a lot of flying parents don't understand are available? And if they just asked for them, they would get them when it comes to flying. Almost all airlines we've ever flown will allow you to bring your stroller right up to the, actually the door of the plane, and then carry your child on and they'll fold it up. Well, you have to fold it up for them and then they'll check it on and it'll meet you at the door of the plane when you land. So that's a good advice. That's great. Ashley and Anya, when you're packing for the flight, I would think an experienced uh, parent would know a few little smart items to bring along. And I think parents talk about this a lot. What are your tricks for making the flight go better by packing a few things smartly? Ashley. Well, when they were little, very little, we used to put the camera in one of those, um, the pull-ups. We kept the camera in there. And then if the kids couldn't get up to go to the bathroom, we always had these pull-ups available to us, even if they couldn't get up. When they were little all the way till now in their teens, they like to have a few plain presents, we call them. So a few little tiny things wrapped and they can open them. You know, now it's a pack of gum, but back then it was maybe a... That's so cute to think you have a little three or four-year-olds. Here's your plane present. Here's your plane surprise. And then 10 years later, they're 14 years old. I want my plane surprise. They, <laughs> they looked, she looked very sad when I said she'd outgrown them. And I figure here's some great way to That's maintain nice childhood. Idea. Yep. Hey, Anya, what about uh, smart things to pack along as a yeah, parent? Yeah, you know, as a nurse consultant, I always advise that your carry-on is your lifeline when you're up at the, over the Atlantic Ocean. It's You have to pack everything you need for that flight. I think monitoring kids' happiness is being one step ahead of them. If they're hungry, thirsty, have to use the toilet, getting bored, but it's um, having what you need when you need it and not relying on the airlines or the airport for anything you need. There's some real wisdom there to be one step ahead of your child's needs. If they're going to be hungry, if they're going to be tired, if they're going to be bored, you're equipped and you're you're ahead of the curve. And my son refused to eat the airline food, the kids meal. He would look at it and be a little bit disgusted because the sauces had mixed together and stuff. So uh-huh. I always say don't ever rely on the airlines for their food because when your kids are hungry, it's already too mm-hmm. late. You want to feed them before they get really hungry. Ashley, any further advice on that? Oh, that's great advice. We've been on flights where they've run out of food. So you really, I mean, I can survive yeah. a few hours sometimes. And the kids, but adults the kids can don't. wait, but kids, when they want some food, they yep. want, and then they, they're hungry. You said, wait, you're going to get it, and then it comes and they don't like it. That's a drag. So come equipped that way. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking flying with kids. We're joined by Anya Clowers. Her website's jetwithkids.com. 
and Ashley Steele. Her website's familyontheloose.com. So you're going to spend a lot of time at the airport waiting. You're going to spend a lot of time on the plane flying. What is your best way to involve the kids in something? Do you bring movies on little screens or what? Now that there's digital entertainment really everywhere, but I think the most important part is when you're at the airport waiting to get on the flight to have some active games. They can run around in the waiting area. They can do jumping jacks or yoga. There's depending. Great idea, because they're going to be strapped into a seat for several hours after that. Can have a lot of fun. All right. Anya, any ideas on uh, activities at the airport or on the plane? Yeah, you know, we used airplane books or airport books and looked at, you know, all the different people coming and going, looking at the different luggage, things like that. So we would actually bring the airport book along and then compare what he saw to what was in the book. And, What's an airport book? Uh, books about airports. Oh, Kid, books there are books written, about airports. Yeah, books that were written, um, really great books out there about airports and airplanes and just the different things you see. And they're usually really colorful and detailed and have people from different cultures and, you know, just showing how different. It's very interesting. The, the airport life yeah. airport life is very interesting if you sit and watch people. And I think the most important thing I, I focus on toddlers and preschoolers is to involve them in the process so they can hand the ticket to the ticket agent and that they're part of it instead of being dragged along. Involve the kid in the process. Great advice. Let's just close with one thing that's been really fun, actually, when you've been flying with your kids. Ashley. Having that quiet time with your kids, I I mean, there's not too much time in modern life when I get three hours with my child. Maybe as they've gotten older, maybe we're reading the same book and discussing it. When they were younger, I had time to draw. So see it as a positive opportunity to be close to your child. Yes. That's beautiful. Anya. Yeah, it's a time when you don't have all the other distractions. And Mm -hmm. um, I think the key to happiness on planes is being really involved with your kids and interacting with them. And my son has gotten um, involved. We always introduce him to the flight crew. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, flight crew always deserves a little thank you note and some chocolate. We have him write it and sign it. And so um, what they put up within a day, <laughs> I could never do. <laughs> That's fantastic. So I think um, just having the child introduce themselves to the people around you, it's showing him. Uh, one more thing I wanted to say about people struggle with if their seat's being kicked. What I noticed with my son is I took a picture once. He's never allowed to put his seat up or feet up on the seat. But there was nobody in front of him. He had his feet up on the seat. I took a picture because I wanted to show he was so involved in what he was doing. He was watching a video. He didn't realize it. He put his feet up to rest them there. And he couldn't even see that there was anyone in the seat in front of him. And I think people are instantly offended but they don't realize a lot of times the kids, it's not personal. They can't even tell you're there. Right. It's mm-hmm. a lot of times just where to rest their feet. Yeah. But that's why it's really important for parents to be involved and in watching their kids and two steps ahead of them. And Very nice. Anya Clowers and Ashley Steele, you guys are full of wisdom from firsthand experience. Thank you for paying attention, taking notes, and sharing that with the travelers in your respective websites. Thank you. Thank you. You can hear more from Anya and Ashley on the topic of globetrotting with kids from their last appearance on the show. Look in the Travel with Rick Steves archives at ricksteves.com for program number 386 from November 2014. Most of the amazing wildlife you'll encounter on the island of Madagascar can't be found anywhere else on Earth. The island has long been a favorite destination for Hilary Bratt of the Bratt Guidebook series. Hilary co-authors the Bratt Guides to Madagascar and Madagascar Wildlife. She calls the unusual ecosystem of Madagascar a kind of evolutionary tangent. Hillary, just what do you mean by that? There's a very poetic way of describing it. Someone described it as Noah's Ark set adrift in the Indian Ocean. The, the reason, and there's a perfectly concrete reason why everything's so different, and that's that Madagascar split off from Africa, or started splitting off from Africa, 200 million years ago. And so if you think that mammals didn't evolve till about 60 million years Hmm. ago, 
by the time that they were evolving, Madagascar was already drifting away. There was already quite a big gap, the Mozambique Channel, between Africa and Madagascar. So we think that the ancestors of the lemurs, which are very similar, were very similar to the bush babies of Africa, we think that they probably reached Madagascar on rafts of vegetation. Kind of a freakish situation that some lemur was stuck on a, on a raft or a log and a storm blew him over to this island that's twice the size of Great Britain, which didn't have any lions or tigers or elephants. And suddenly the lemurs are in this beautiful environment where nobody's going to eat them. Exactly. Yes, quite extraordinary. And when you think of the chances, you'd have to have either a pregnant female or a male and a female, but somehow they did it, and we don't really know how. And so this little bush baby type creature evolved into now about a hundred different species of lemurs, which are all over the island, mainly in uh, the rainforest, but also in the dry desert part. As long as there are trees, there are lemurs. And as you say, they have no natural predators. They have birds of prey, which feed on them, and one predator, the fossa, which is a bit like a a very large weasel. Mm. But otherwise, they have been in this sort of Garden of Eden without any enemies and just evolved very slowly and very gently. Now, to take this even further in the trail of environmental cuteness, these are little adorable creatures. I mean, they're related to the bush babies you mentioned in, in Africa, and they get over to Madagascar, And they come over as one species, but I understand now after reading your book, Madagascar Wildlife, that because of the environment, they have evolved into a sort of a collection of species, depending on if they live in the rainforest or on the beach or in the lagoons or in in the prairie. Talk about the diversity of the lemurs and what we'll find today as we sightsee around Madagascar, how the environment would have shaped these various species of lemurs. Well, it is an absolute showcase of evolution. It is fascinating because they've all evolved to fill a particular niche. And one of the perfect examples, actually, is the I.I. And the I.I. is a really bizarre creature. It's got the tail of a squirrel and huge bat-like ears and teeth like a rodent. Hmm. But what's really special about the I.I. is it has a finger which it can probe into underbark to dig out grubs and so on. And that's because in its habitat, which is fairly widely spread throughout the island, there are no woodpeckers. And so it's evolved to fill that particular niche because if there are grubs living in under tree bark, there's going to be an animal to exploit this food source. Oh, my goodness. So they live up in the canopies a lot, don't they, uh, in the rainforest? That's right. They live up in the trees. So you can, you can imagine when they're up there, they've got to have uh, long fingers to dig into the bark. They've got to have big ears so they can hear what's going on around them. It must be fascinating. As you said, it's sort of a textbook field study for evolution to see how characteristics of these lemurs became more pronounced so they could survive and thrive in their environment. Exactly. It's a bit like Darwin's finches. You know, if anyone knows about the Galapagos and Darwin's finches that evolved all these different beaks... The lemurs evolved different ways of getting their food. And actually, the big bat-like ears of the eye-eye is so that they can hear the grubs moving under the bark of the tree. And so they're particularly adapted for digging out these grubs. My goodness, I'm talking with Hilary Bratton. Hilary is famous among travelers for her Brat Publishing Company that publishes guidebooks to all over the developing world. A big place in her heart is filled by Madagascar. She's written The Brat Guide to Madagascar. And for nature lovers, the companion guide would be Madagascar Wildlife. Hillary, when you think of sightseeing these lemurs, where would you go to watch the lemurs? And what are some tips if you're going to fly all the way to Madagascar to make that worthwhile? You can see them just about everywhere, actually. Obviously, you're seeing different species. The most popular species is the ring-tailed lemur, which are the ones that are most familiar from zoos and from the cartoon Madagascar. They're found very easily. They spend more time on the ground than most lemurs, so they're easy to see. But I would say Madagascar is quite challenging to get around, so I would go with a good tour operator because you spend an awful lot of time on local transport. It's not like Europe. Mm, mm. And with a local tour operator, you can get to the places that really matter. There are very, very good national parks and reserves now. And I know from my experience that the value of a local tour guide increases as the cost of the guide goes down. In the more expensive, wealthier countries, you don't really need a guide as much, and they cost a small fortune. But in the developing world, your guide is your friend, your interpreter, your 
partner in enjoying safe and tasty food and explains to you all the natural wonders of the place you're exploring. Hilary Bratt writes The Brat Guide to Madagascar, and if you want to learn more about lemurs and other wildlife, of course, the Madagascar Wildlife Book. And if you do get a chance to run out of lemurs to see, of course, there's lots more on Madagascar. You've got chameleons, you've got frogs, geckos, a wonderland of birds. Talk just a, a moment about the other wildlife on the island that would be a highlight for visitors. Oh, good. I can't resist talking about chameleons because... To me, they are just as wonderful as lemurs, possibly even more wonderful, because they're so bizarre and so little known. I mean, it's the only place that you find chameleons apart from Africa and southern Europe. So they're an unusual form of lizard, and they vary so much. They've got armor-plated eyeballs with huge swivels, (laughs) and they've got strong jaws and tiny sharp teeth and lightning fast tongues that are as long as their body with sticky suction cups on the end of them. Can you actually see these characters out in the wild? Well, the great thing about chameleons is, yes, you can see them because their defense against being eaten is to be camouflaged, as most people know, but also to keep absolutely still and to move very slowly. And these eyeballs that you talked about, they move independently. And it's absolutely fascinating. They swivel around and you see it keeping its head completely still and looking at you with one eye and looking at someone else or perhaps a fly or an insect Ah. for lunch with the other eye. So you become a real fan of Darwin and survival of the species here because you can see right there they have to be still, but they have to be able to look around and see where their predators are. Consequently, you have these freakish eyeballs that stick out and go on a swivel. Yeah, exactly. It's (laughs) it's one of the many things... I want to thank you for dedicating decades of your life and sharing your passion of Madagascar for all of us travelers. Once again, Hilary Bratt's guide is Madagascar Wildlife, and the basic guide to Madagascar is called the Bratt Guide to Madagascar. Hilary, thanks so much, and uh, happy chameleon and lemur watching in your next adventure. (laughs) Thank you, Rick. I hope you get to Madagascar soon. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Join Rick and his guests as a call around the show when we record our next batch of guest interviews. Look for a link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.